0: This morning, I want to look at verses 1 to 16 of chapter 3 under the title A Cry of Desperation or The Cry of a Desperate Heart. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible and we will read from verse 1 to verse 16. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shigionoth. That word Shigionoth is only used twice in the Bible here and in Psalm 7. And uh, we're not sure what it means. It might mean, it might be a musical instruction. It might be a a kind of instruction around how the psalm is to be played or the uh, poem is to be read or played. It's related probably to a Hebrew word for lament. So it probably is a song or a poem that is to be sung as a lament. O Lord, I have heard of your renown and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. God came from Taiman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. The brightness was like the sun rays came forth from his hand. Where his power lay hidden. Before him went pestilence and plague followed close behind. He stopped and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The eternal mountains were shattered. Along his ancient pathways, the everlasting hills sank low. I saw the tents of Cushan under affliction. The tent curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Or your anger against the rivers, or your rage against the seas, when you drove your horses, your chariots to victory? You brandished your naked bow, sated were the bow arrows at your command. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, the torrent of water swept by, the deep gave forth its voice. The sun raised high its hand. The moon stood still in its exalted place. At the light of your arrows speeding by, at the gleam of your flashing spear, in fury you trod the earth. In anger you trampled nations. You came forth to save your people, to save your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked house, laying it bare from foundation to roof. You pierced with their own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter us, gloating as if ready to devour the poor who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses churning the mighty waters. I hear and I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. So here we are somewhere between 610 BC and 630 BC and Habakkuk has seen the people of the southern kingdom of Judah um, go deeper and deeper and deeper into disobedience to God and he's cried out and said why has this happened and God has said I'm going to send judgment and Habakkuk says I'm not happy that you're going to judge us through a group of people called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians and God says that's my right And Habakkuk says, that's not fair. And God says back, but I will deal with them also. And Habakkuk responds by saying, then I will trust you in the midst of uncertainty and not knowing, I will trust you. And he sees this profound and important revelation from God that God sees all things. You will remember that last Sunday morning, I encouraged you that Habakkuk was told by God and made a decision to watch and to wait and to worship. As he saw God's purposes and plans being outworked, you can read of what that looks like in chapter two. Here we come to the final chapter of this poetic book, this beautiful, powerful story of one man's struggle with evil and unrighteousness around the world and what it means when God's people become unrighteous. And as we enter chapter three, we hear his prayer. It's the most vulnerable part of this story. It's the most open Part of this story. He's done his wrestling with God. He now has to make a decision. And his decision is that he will cry out to God, O Lord, verse 2, I have heard of your renown and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In your own time revive it, in our own time make it known. In wrath may you remember mercy. The whole rest of the chapter is a commentary on those two verses. All that flows from it, including the powerful prayer of trust and anticipation and hope that we will look at next Sunday morning, all springs from that short section of this letter in one sense, or of this book. In one sense, these are the words that are the beating heart of Habakkuk. O Lord, I have heard of your renown and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. That's the cry of a desperate man. Not just for himself, but for his nation. The Hebrew word that is used for his prayer here is a word that means supplication. He's not crying out for himself. He's crying out for his nation. He's crying out for the believers of the Jewish community. He's saying, oh God, will you do something? In wrath, will you remember mercy? Mercy. And he does it by saying three things at the beginning of this as we begin to explore this passage. First of all, I have heard of your renown. Secondly, I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. And thirdly, in our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. I have heard of your renown. I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work. It's as if Habakkuk stands and he turns and looks backwards. Then he turns and he makes a decision about himself. And then he turns and he looks forward. He thinks about his past. He thinks about his posture. And then he makes a plea. The past that he remembers is unpacked from verses 3 all the way through to verse 16. And you will read mysterious words that may not make much sense to you through those passages. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, verse 3. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. The brightness was like the sun. Rays came forth from his hand where his power lay hidden. Before him were pestilence and plague followed close behind. He stopped and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The eternal mountains were shattered along his ancient pathways. I saw the tents of Cushan under affliction. What is he remembering? As Habakkuk stands at one of the most dangerous and uncertain points in the history of the Jewish people, He looks back into his past, into their past, and he remembers something that changed their destiny. From verses 3 through to verse 16, Habakkuk is remembering the Exodus. His words point back to an event recorded in Exodus chapter 12 and following, where God Interacted with human history where he stepped into history through the life of a man called Moses and he led those that had been caught in Egyptian slavery for 400 years into freedom. In the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of fear, in the midst of not knowing what was coming next, Habakkuk looked back and he saw in the past in the story of his people a God who was faithful a God who was willing to intervene in history, a God who was willing to shake the heavens and the earth in order to rescue his people. And it gives him hope that the same God could do it again. That the God who has intervened once can intervene again. And he cries out, I have heard of your renown and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. When you read from verses three through to 15 more slowly, you will begin to see how this all fits together. He recounts this great story of God delivering his people. Taman mentioned in verse three is a general word that points to the south. This is the time of the Exodus. This is the time when God led his people out of Egyptian slavery and into freedom. In verses four and five, you read, the brightness was like the sun. Rays came forth from his hand where his power lay hidden. Before him went pestilence and plague followed close behind. He stopped and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The story that you're hearing is of a God who sent pestilence, a God who sent plague, a God who intervened, a God who led them out of Egypt and appeared to them on a mountain in fire and in thunder and in lightning. It's If you know the story of the Exodus, it's a familiar story. Habakkuk is looking back and he's saying, this God intervened, this God rescued us. It's part of our story, it's part of our heritage, it's where we've come from. And I'm not going to forget it even in the midst of uncertainty now. When everything around me seems to be shaking, I'm going to look to my past and I'm going to find this story that gives me hope and confidence and I'm going to hold on to it. In verse six, he mentions the mountains. He stopped and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The eternal mountains were shattered. Mountains in Hebrew theology and in the Hebrew Bible talk of foundations. They speak of things that are unmovable, things that are secure. You read about them being shaken by God in Exodus chapter 19, verse 18 In Psalm 18 verse 7, in Isaiah chapter 24 verses 1 to 3, in Jeremiah chapter 4 verses 24 to 26, in all four of those examples, the writers use the example of mountains to say God is stronger than the mountains. God sits under the very foundations of the earth. And when he wants to intervene in history, even the mountains shake. Even the things that look unmovable are shaken at the word of his command. This is how powerful and how reliable he is. In verse seven, Habakkuk mentions Cushan and Midian, an area that was near um, where the, um, the Israelites camped. Talked of in Exodus chapter 15 and Joshua chapter two. In verse eight, he talks about the, the Nile and the sea and the rivers being shaken. God shook the Nile, turned it to blood. Uh, God helped them cross the Red Sea when they were exiting Egypt and going into the promised land. God broke open the Jordan when they were in the promised land so that they could walk across it. We know because we know another part of these stories that they don't know because they weren't written, because they hadn't happened, that God walked on water in Jesus Christ that he turned water into wine, that he had the power and capacity to do something beyond anybody's understanding. But here, Habakkuk looks back and he sees all of these things and sees them all at the command and the call of Almighty God. Look at verse 11 for a moment. The sun raised its hands, the moon stood still in its exalted place at the light of your arrow speeding by at the gleam of your flashing spear. What does that mean? What is he remembering there? Habakkuk is looking back to a victory that God gave Joshua at Gebeah. You can read it in Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. He looked at his past as he was hopeful for his future. Could you do that? Christian, do you have enough understanding of God's interventions for his people in the past of our story that when you are up against it, you remember that story. The story recorded in Scripture. The story recorded in God's great purposes and plans. But not only that, let me talk for a moment to the room, to those that are joining online from Northern Ireland and from the island of Ireland. What's God's story in our land, here in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland? Could you recount or do you know anything of the story of God's moving across these Lands over the years of the revivals of 1859, the outbreaking of God's power in this place in the years that have gone on, the finding of Pentecostalism and all that God did in 1915 and beyond, the raising up of His power and His Spirit in Balamina and Kalibaki and Ahochel, a place that none of my English friends can pronounce. Where is that a hog hill? Where is that a hog hill? <laughs> Ahochel. It's one of my favorite words. Shall we all say it together? If you've got a bad throat, one, two, three, there you are, you feel much better for that. (laughs) Because there is a story in these lands. There's a story of God's hand at work, there's a story of God raising up people, of moving by his power. There's a story of men and women being raised and sent to the four corners of the earth. Amy Semple McPherson and her story or uh, Jim McConnell just down the road in East Belfast and his story or Ian Paisley and his story. Men and women whose preaching of the gospel brought liberty and life and hope and freedom to tens of thousands of people. I want to remember that story when we face lean years, when we stand in uncertainty, when we see our politicians trembling a little bit, when we see moral and ethical and spiritual uncertainty, I'm not talking about the personnel. I'm talking about the power behind those people. We look back and we hear a story of a God who has been at work, amen? And it encourages us that the God who has been at work can do it again, I don't care, and I don't mean this to be rude or confrontational. I don't care if every single person in our church family, in the Elam family, in in, in Northern Ireland, in the United Kingdom, I don't care if everybody in the world tells me that God has finished with this island. I don't believe he has. And I will stand remembering our story and praying for what he wants to do in the future. And if I die not seeing it, I, I will die believing that it will happen the following day. I am utterly convinced that God has a work to do in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland, and I want to see it. But what we do when we feel discouraged, when we are covered by despair, when sadness grips us, when uncertainty grabs our neck, is we stand and we remember. I have heard. What has God done in your life, sister? What has God done in your life, brother? Look back, not only over the story of the church, look back over your story. But Malcolm, I'm in a rough place now. Many of us are in a rough place now. But make a choice to remember the goodness of God. That God that saved you, that God that rescued you, that God that loved you, that God that delivered you, that God that comforted you, that God that carried you, that God that spoke words and promises into your life. He hasn't changed. I have heard of your renown. Where did he hear it? He didn't make it up. He didn't go into some kind of corner in space. He heard of it through the community of faith. It's trendy to say you don't need church today. You do. It's trendy to say that you can do church without you can do God without church, that you can watch online and never engage in community. Brothers and sisters watching online, I'm glad you're online. But listen to me, online is 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 not the same as real actual community. Being part of something is important because in the moments that I can't pray for myself, somebody can remind me that they're praying for me. And in the moments when I lose sight of God's grace and presence and power, I am reminded by somebody in a congregation that God hasn't abandoned us. I sensed it this morning. David, to encourage you, I was was about to take a foot onto that step there to say almost exactly the same thing as you. So thank you for listening to God. Thank you for stepping out in faith. Do it more and more and more. I was delighted that happened this morning. Some of you came discouraged. You might still be discouraged. Facing battles, you're certainly still facing those. But in this community, somebody got up and reminded you of the story of God's faithfulness. Did you not sense it as we were singing the song? Something rising in your heart? A sense of God's presence beginning to whisper into your soul? I felt it here, standing there, standing in one, sitting somewhere there. <laughs> the cry of a desperate heart remembers our past. Remember your story. And then he says, I stand In awe, O Lord, of your work. He postures himself in worship. He doesn't posture himself in cynicism. He doesn't posture himself in um, abandonment. He doesn't posture himself in a disregard. I stand in awe of your work, O Lord. What's your posture today? I wonder what the posture of the church in the United Kingdom is. Defeated? Discouraged? Wandering or wondering? I want to be postured in faith. I want to stand with open hands, ready to receive what God wants to give me. I want to position myself in awe of God. Respecting his greatness and his glory and his power, with everything that I may have gone through, with everything that might have happened in my life or your life, I encourage you. I, I, I exhort you, I plead with you. Let your posture be one of anticipation. What would it look like for Don Elam to posture itself this way? It would look like us thinking, how can we create space for people to lead? How can we plant new churches? Where can we work with the people of God? Who can we release into God's purposes and plans? Who amongst us has God's hands upon them? Where can we take some risks? How are we going to be a community that is open to those that are broken and vulnerable? How do we make sure that we preach the gospel week by week? What does it mean to have a ministry of healing and restoration? How do we see Dundonald and Lisburn and Castle Ray transformed by the grace and the mercy of God? How do we serve the poor and the broken? How do we stand up for those who have no voice for themselves? How do we preach the gospel week in and week out? What does it look like to make disciples? How do we teach the Bible sufficiently that people hear it faithfully and respond to it? How do we take risks and step into a new chapter? That's what it looks like. It's not some kind of airy-fairy idea that says on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night, we come and enjoy the meeting and leave. To posture yourself in expectation is to be ready for something, Amen? amen? Let me remind you of something, believer. It's not very complicated, but write this down in your notes. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. You're allowed to laugh at that a little bit. <laughs> it had never rained when Noah built the ark. There'd been no water ever that had come out of heaven when Noah built the ark. They'd never seen it, they'd no idea what it looked like. And yet he did it. We so often say, we're not gonna do something until we see something. What if God says, no, I want you to do something and then you'll see it. I want you to step out in faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen. I'm not suggesting for a moment that you should become a a Christian scientist that pretends that what you're facing isn't there. That's nonsense. It's unbiblical and it's unhelpful. But it is possible in the midst of despair, in the midst of uncertainty, even if you don't feel it, as Pastor Davey said this morning, to posture yourself and say, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. I stand in awe of your deeds. 70 years or so after this, as I said last week, God transformed the fortunes of the world in order to set his people free. Good morning, Johnny. What are you doing? (laughs) Lovely to see you. God bless you. Thanks for being so discreet. This is Johnny, our electrician now, as well as our drummer. They postured themselves in anticipation. 70 years, or 80 or 90, depending on when Habakkuk was prophesying, years after this, God changed the fortunes of the greatest empires of the world to deliver his people. The Babylonians were overtaken by the Persians. The Persians were led by a man called Cyrus. Cyrus had a council and he issued a decree in 538 BC that said he was sending all the vassal empires of his kingdom back to their own homeland on the condition that they would pray for him. For one nation and one nation only, he decided that he would pay for them to go back and pay for them to rebuild their temple and provide them with the wood and provide them with the stone cutters. It was Israel. If you don't believe me, go to the British Museum in London, one of the greatest places in the world. Go into room 50 and take a look at a wee clay thing about that size. Full of scratches and marks. It's called Cyrus's Cylinder. There were several of them made and they were sent around the world. And it announced this intention. It wasn't possible in 540 BC. It would never have happened in 539. And yet... In 537, the Jewish people, the people of Judah returned to their homeland because God overturned human history to achieve his purposes and his plans. Posture yourself in expectancy. I'm not buying into the doom and gloom. Not the doom and gloom of the church. Now, let me explain. I don't suggest for one moment that any local church or denomination has a right to continued existence. A word to Donald Elam. I mean this humbly, but I mean it honestly. God doesn't have to place his hand upon us. If we move away from scripture, if we move away from being obedient, if we move away from gospel, if we turn this into some kind of story about us, God will lift his hand like that. Elam doesn't have a right to continue. Methodism, Presbyterianism, the Church of Ireland, no denomination has a right to continue. When God said, I will build my church in Matthew 16 and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He didn't mean that Donald Leland would always exist. He meant that his kingdom would always exist. What he asks us to do is be faithful and watch him build his kingdom. So I have no idea what the next 30 or 40 years will look like, but if God spurs me and I'm allowed to live in it, I want to see it, don't you? I want to posture myself in a position where I can say expectantly, God, do something powerful and profound amongst us. Oh, and I'm excited about that. I have a feeling that in what year is it? 2019 In 2025, we will stop and say, how did we get here? How did we end up looking like this? Look at what the Lord has done. It is marvelous in our eyes. And I think we will be, look so different that we will scratch our head, but I pray that we will continue to be faithful to the gospel faithful to the Bible, faithful to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, faithful to the working of God. An awful lot of Christians think that because their church was used by God 20 years ago, he has to do it again. He doesn't have to do anything. But I want to be part of a community that postures itself in expectancy, postures itself in faith. Having remembered its past, it postures itself with a desperate cry and here's the cry, revive your work. In in our own time, revive it, make it known. In wrath. may you remember mercy. Habakkuk's deep yearning, if if he postured himself in expectancy and he remembered his past, his plea is breathe upon us. Touch us by the power of your spirit. Do something that no one else can do. I do not want to die talking about revival somewhere else. I love them. I'm grateful to God for them. But I'm convinced that God doesn't love other parts of the world more than he loves this wee bit. I don't want to be the person that with, a, 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 with, with my last breath says, oh, I remember hearing the story of God moving in 1859. How many of us have heard stories of the Ormo Park being filled with people praying? I don't want to read stories about it. I want to stand in the middle of Ormu Park and see it filled again with people seeking God. I was converted in Whitewell. I can remember the King's Hall. I can remember great moments when buses came from everywhere so that people could hear the gospel. But I'm not content with that. I want to see that happening again in whatever form it needs to look like now. Men and women coming to hear of the good news of Jesus Christ. On Monday night, I met a wonderful man who was, is called Reverend Tom Shaw. He was the congregational minister in Abbot's Cross Presbyterian. He was preceded by Sammy Workman, two great preachers. And I said, I always do this when I meet somebody like that. I said, tell me, tell me something that will encourage me. Tell me something that I can learn from you. How can I I grow in my ministry? What can I do to, to pursue God's purposes and plans? And this dear, godly, gracious old man looked at me and he said, Malcolm, pray I said, tell me some of the stories of what happened at Abbotts Cross Presbyter- uh, Congregational because I went to that, to the BB there with a Christian friend of mine from I was about eight until 10. He said, oh, you're one of ours. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> but tell me the stories. He said, Malcolm, by the time I got there, Sammy Workman had established a prayer meeting every morning from 6 a.m. to 9. Except a Sunday when it was 7 a.m. to 9. And he said, they were packed. He said, kids used to get off the bus. They'd come early. Teenagers. I was looking at the young adults there, but not for any particular reason. They would get off early. They would get up, and they'd throw their school bags at the door. And they'd go into those prayer meetings at 6 a.m. and get on their knees and cry out to God. God yearning for him to do something. And he said, Sunday by Sunday, I'd be walking down the aisle and a visitor would grip my arm and say, Mr. Mr. Sean, can I get right with Jesus? Can you tell me about heaven? I need to know about this Jesus that you've talked about. People would weep in the balcony and have to be helped down the stairs to get to the front because they couldn't walk under the weight of sin. I want to see that again. I want to see God move in power. Now, I'm not saying we should replicate that. And you know me, those of you that are part of our church, know how much I love you and how much I honor you and how much I thank God for you and how much I try to avoid putting pressure on people. I don't like that mentality that assumes that you're right with God if you're at every meeting. It's nonsense, isn't it? 30, 40 years on, lives are busy. Families have demands upon them. Kids have to get to school. But where are you on a Friday morning? When we are on our knees crying out to God for him to move in our nation, where are you? Is it too much for us as followers of Jesus Christ to get on our knees and say, have mercy upon us, visit us again? I think one of the problems is what we want is God to move in a Sunday and fit into our plans Do it in the meeting so it doesn't demand anything of me. But he won't do that. I sometimes laugh when people say to me, you know, you don't understand what it's like with young children. We had four under five and a half. I learned the charismatic art of raised worship. (laughs) And week by week, I was in the pulpit preaching and my wife was on her own with our kids. And she made it work. Ask the families that founded this church how many children they had. What did they do with their kids when they were growing up? Now I'm not suggesting you should um, sacrifice your children but I am plainly, honestly and straightly asking you today, every one of you including the pastors where are you on a Friday morning? When we are on our knees crying out to God where are you? If you want God to move, get on your knees in your room. Get on your knees at work. Get on your knees in a side room. Do something, but get on your knees. If we want God to move, then we're going to need to be a people who pray. When we pray, when we ask him, when we yearn for him to do something, something changes in the atmosphere. You're never too old to be part of that. You're never too young to be part of it. You're never too spent to be part of it. You're never too busy to be part of it. Our plea. Lord, do it again. Move in our midst. And I have to say to you, I don't mind if God chooses to move somewhere else. I actually, I'm not praying that God will simply lift up Dundonald Donald I'm praying that he'll lift up his son. That his kingdom will be extended. I don't care whether he does that here or in the Presbyterian church up the road or in the Baptist church next door to McDonald's and people go in there by mistake. (laughs) I don't care where it is. I don't want to pray that God will make us this amazing church. I, don't, I, 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 want to be, I want God to make his kingdom a place of renown. And you cannot outbless God. If we pray, God, bless your kingdom, bless your gospel, you will have heard me pray it many times. Wherever the gospel is preached today, let it bring honor to your name. Whoever's standing behind a pulpit, bless them. Let souls be swept into the kingdom across the island of Ireland. Let's not have this kind of small-mindedness that says it has to be here. It has to be in this congregation. It has to be in this church. I don't care. I just want to see God move and see men and women come into living faith in Jesus. Don't you? Our past is one that reminds us of God's faithfulness. Our posture is demonstrated in the priorities of our lives. The way we talk, what we do with our time and our energy and our money and our expectancy and our attitudes and our plea. Above and beyond everything else is God. Will you move in power amongst us? Will you visit your church again? What would it look like for this tiny province to be set ablaze by the gospel of Jesus Christ again? Is it possible that something could flow out of here into the continent of Europe? Could God flow rivers of renewal and awakening into the United Kingdom, into the Republic of Ireland, into Great Britain, into the Republic of Ireland, into France and Belgium and the Netherlands and Germany? Could God do something here like he did um, 1,500 years ago that sends saints and scholars around the, the, the whole known world with the good news of Jesus Christ? I think he could. I think he could. I'm going to tell you a story and then we're going to move to communion. I was talking to Pastor Pip, I think it was, last week. I can't remember the context. You can tell me later, Pip. But I preached, I led for nearly a decade a church in England called Gold Hill Baptist Church before coming here. And it's, Chalfont St. Peter, where, where the church is situated, is not exactly the center of the universe. It's a sleepy little community in Buckinghamshire. Beautiful. I loved my time there. And I can remember asking myself, and, and the church was at the center of charismatic renewal in the 70s and the 80s. God was moving. They're working on a fantastic new building project now. It's a really strong church. I loved my time and I'm grateful to God for it. And I would often say to my colleagues in ministry, why, was, why, why did God do all this here? In this little place, why did he, why did he do it here? And I went away for three or four days about six or seven years ago. And here, here is the conclusion that I reached. Chalfont St. Peter is the largest village in England. Statistically. And I thought, well, maybe we don't have faith to believe that God can transform a nation. Maybe, maybe, maybe we just have to be honest about that. Maybe we don't have faith to believe that he can transform a county. Or a region, or a city, or a town. But what about a village? What if God transformed a village from the top to the bottom? Its education, its housing, its employment, its attitude to newcomers, its spiritual life, its physical life, its financial commitments, the way it trades and does. What if God could transform a village? just a village and i came to the conviction that that is what god wants to do in chalfont st peter he wants to transform a village and let people see that he can still do it now what if he can transform a little nation a little square one that sits on the top of an island it only has six counties in it they're so easy to remember We all fat lad them. What if God can transform Fermanagh, Antrim, Tyrone, Londonderry, Armagh and down? What if he can take this tiny little nation on the earth that other people laugh at? Does that not annoy you? When people in the Guardian and the Telegraph write about us as if we're a backwater, how dare they? Do they realize that this is the land where some of the greatest writers and scientists and thinkers and politicians and leaders and business people have come from? What if God can transform this little bit of earth and every county can see a move of his spirit and churches can be renewed and people can be converted and sent all around the world? Isn't that worth crying out to God for? I pray you do and you join me in it. But here is what I want you to think about with me now. When Habakkuk stood and looked back to remember, he sent his mind to the greatest event of Jewish history, the Exodus. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ appeared on a mountaintop and beside him were his three friends, James, Peter, and John. And they watched him being transformed, transfigured. His ordinary clothes became dazzling white. And he was seen talking to two people, two figures from the Old Testament. One was Elijah and one was Moses. And one of the gospels tells us what they were talking about. Elijah and Moses were talking to Jesus in Greek. The word, they didn't speak Greek. They probably spoke Aramaic. But the account in the New Testament says that Elijah and Moses were talking to Jesus about his exodus. The bread and the grape juice that sits on that table is the story that we remember. Habakkuk looked back and remembered God's intervention that set the people of Israel free. We look back beyond The moves of God in the last 10 or 20 years. We look back before the 1859 revival. We look back before the Reformation. We look back before the great Celtic saints. We look back before the church fathers. We look back before all of that. And we remember our exodus every week. That's why we do it because when we come battered and bruised and broken by everything that's going on in the world and by all the stuff that's happened to us and the things that have been stuck to us, we remember our past, that Jesus Christ set us free on a cross, that the Exodus has happened for us. The blood has been placed on our lives. We've been set free from sin and shame and fear and death and should all the world turn against us, nothing can change that event. Jesus paid it all for me. He set me free. My story is transformed because it's rooted in his story. And his story is rooted in the exodus of the cross. His body broken for you. That's why we have pieces of bread. His blood shed for you. That's why we have vials of grape juice. And every week we remember. But do we posture ourselves with expectation and possibility? Or do we just quiet and down until this passes? This morning, look to the exodus. Christ has paid the price. Christ has won the victory. Christ has set us free. Nothing you face is stronger than him. So with your posture of expectancy, as Pastor Davey said earlier on, you remember he is here. You believe that he is here. And as we eat bread and wine or eat bread and drink grape juice, may he meet you by the power of the Holy Spirit.